Shalom and welcome to The Straw Hat, hosted by Rabbi David Wolkenfeld. We are the official podcast of Anshay Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. So we are back for one final podcast episode, uh, which I didn't think uh, we would make. But just a few days ago, uh, the Dafyomi cycle began Mesechet Gitin, which is mostly occupied with the procedures and rules of the of divorce, Jewish divorce, halachic divorce, and um, thought it would be an appropriate occasion to reach out to my friends and colleague and former um, um, podcast guest, Rabbi Zach Trubaf, uh, to so he could share a little bit about how divorce works today and some of the problematics of the Jewish divorce process and some of the ways in which there are attempts to make that process uh, better. What we have, some of how th- those, um, uh, some of that story uh, as well. And so, um, and so here he is. So, um, so, so, uh, Rabbi Trubal, please, please share a little bit about that. I guess sort of what, what what's the what's the um, what happens when we take the the material that we're encountering now in Dafyomi and the gets it in the Talmud, and let's jump ahead to you know. Five seven eight three in North America in Israel. What does divorce look like? How do some of these procedures that we're encountering in the Talmud? How are they like applied in in real life? And and how does that work? And how does that not work um, in modern times? So um, thank you, Rabbi Wachenfeld. Uh, so th- let me begin just by saying that my experience on this issue derives from my work at the International Beit Din, in which I'm the uh, director of rabbinic education, and I also assist the Dayanim and uh, some of the casework and some of the chuva writing. Uh, and what you get to see, and we, we have a, a large number of cases uh, each year uh, and beyond, um, is that you really get to see the breadth and depth of, of Jewish divorce, right? The good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, one of the things that you have to realize, and you, you made this point of how we leap from the Gemara to Jewish divorce today, um, and it's not a simple leap for a variety of reasons. Uh, the first thing I'll, I'll just note is that even when you look at Masechet Gitin, uh, most of the work is not, uh, most of the work, meaning most of the Masechet, is not about what I do. Meaning like a lot of the work we deal with as a Beit Din, um, very little of it can be found within the pages of Masechet Gitin. Some, but really a very, very uh, small, small amount. Because Masechet Gitin is mostly about um, what you do when a husband wants to give the get and a wife wants to receive it, right? It basically lays out all the procedures, all the rituals, all the details for how do you make a get happen? And then recognizing sometimes it's not so easy to get that get from one side to the other. And what happens if the husband puts conditions on it, deny him, right? There are all sorts of things that kind of emerge in the process of the giving of the get and how that needs to be uh, to be handled. But again, the way divorce works today is that if both parties want to get divorced, they show up in a bait and, and the get is given. Right? It's very straightforward, very simple. We don't really do, you know, getting all the shaliyah or getting the tanaya, right? These aren't features of um, Jewish uh, or, or, or bait work today at all, uh, in minimally, but almost not, 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 not at all, right? The cases that everybody's dealing with, which are the hard cases, so to speak, are the ones in which either the husband doesn't want to give or the wife doesn't want to receive, right? And that's really where all bait work picks up. In fact, you could argue that, you know, even the act of the, the get itself, you know, intersects, and this is true also with Kedushin, but particularly for Gittin, between, you know, Dine Mamanot, between like what we might think of as a ritual act, 
right? Like where, where there's, you know, as they say, right? you have to have this moment in which there is a ritual legal act that effectuates a certain fundamental legal change. Uh, but there's also a huge mamino portion of this, like who owns what? How do we figure that out? A ritual aspect as well as a monetary aspect. Of- yeah, right. And and even and so it cuts across a variety of, of, of levels. And even by the ritual aspect, which is really where the Masechet is focused on, right? Like, again, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's routine. It's not. To know this material in detail um, is a life's work. That's why there are such few Masadre Gitten, the people who really run the ritual, so to speak, in the world. But in truth, it's it's very much a sort of technical knowledge, right? It's just a, a lot of details you kind of have to know. Um, again, the hard part of the work is where it's not just the ritual, but like, again, what if one of the sides or both of the sides doesn't want to actually uh, participate in this? Let's talk about that. That's not in the Masechet so much, and we haven't seen that, certainly not in the first Tapim uh, we've encountered so far. So what happens when there's a, you know, a, you know, a recalcitrant member of the marriage who doesn't want to participate, and I and I... My understanding is that that's a more common would be a husband who doesn't want to participate, but I, I guess it can happen in both ways. How, how do, what happens when, when that occurs? And uh, I guess those are the cases that come to your desk, right? Right, right. So again, as long as both parties want to do it, it's basically a ritual act, right? Like, because it's just a question of how do we do this formal ritual to acknowledge as marriage has come to an end, right? Through the giving of the gets in this formal technical way. People have to be there. People have to see it, right? That's all, that's all it really is. It's when one of the parties doesn't want to. We are now in the area of what we would call a dispute, right? We are now in a fundamental dispute between two Jews that has to be mediated by legal authority. That's like a whole other world entirely, right? Sometimes that applies to criminal law. Sometimes that applies to financial disputes. But it's a whole different world than just how do I get the, the, the guys together to do the mitzvah, right? Like it's something fundamentally else entirely. So that question about like if one side doesn't want to give really takes us beyond Masechet Gitin to Masechet, I'll say Masechet Sanhedrin, right? I mean, also to Ketubot, but I say Sanhedrin because it gets to the very essence of rabbinic authority, right? Because again, the only way you can mediate disputes um, is with authority. Um, That's the whole nature of the way political, you know, the political state functions, sovereignty functions, right? Like the purpose of the state is to basically, it makes the promise that we give up our license to do violence as individuals, because the state is basically going to have a monopoly on violence and mediate disputes and ensure that violence isn't being used as a weapon from citizens of the state one against the other, right? Disputes about rights, responsibilities are going to be adjudicated by the by the state. But when law is tied to a state, right, it means that the legal system has authority, right? It means that uh, on a fundamental level, when the ruling is issued, right, the parties are bound to it. They are bound to it to the extent that there will be enforcement if they don't live up to it, right? And we know the legal enforcement take on many different mechanisms, but the strongest version being like you're going to be put in put in jail, right? So in a very simple way, we know that Bate Din don't have the ability in America, right, to have any kind of legal or uh, enforcement, any kind of like teeth on what, whatever kind of rulings they might might do, right? Separation of church and state. We should all be we should all be thankful for that. Right, but the problem with this actually, we have to even back up a second before we get to the question of, of, of authority of rulings, because where the system actually first and foremost falls apart, and this is something people need to understand about Gittin, um, is the very first step is when, when a party comes to Beitin and opens up a case, right, brings a set of claims, right? Technically, the Beitin is not supposed to hear those claims, at least not initially from the individual person, right? The very next thing that is supposed to happen is the Beitin issues a hasmana, right? Like a summons, we might call it, 
to the other party, the other, you know, Baldin, um, so that they can come, those two parties, give their claims before Baytin, and Baytin can, you know, adjudicate and, and make a ruling, right? That's true. Think about it today, right? If you, someone brings you to court, or if the state is bringing you to court for a crime, right? Like, the legal system only works as if you show up, right? And as we know, in America, or any modern state, if you don't show up to court, there are going to be consequences. But nothing can get off the ground without that. And what happens, even like I said, before we get to the teeth of the legal ruling, is the fundamental fact that parties don't have to show up in court, right? And if you can't get the other side to show up in court, the whole like legal process doesn't even get off the ground on a halachic level. We, there, I can talk more about this, but the basic sense when you read Sanhedrin and this verse of Babakama as well is that Bali Din, both of the parties need to be there. You need to hear from both the parties together and you have to rule with both of the parties present. So the moment people can opt out of that part of it, the whole system collapses right there, right? The whole system fundamentally collapses. Um, and that is really the starting point in America to a large extent. That, that's freedom. Freedom of religion means I don't have to show up. If a Baytin tells me to, I can say, who are you? I'm a, an American citizen. You can't make me come to your religious court. Exactly. And again, this is not a purely American problem. This already exists with emancipation, right, in France and in parts of Europe. Um, the Maharam Sheikh, who is a, a famous posseg, the name of his uh, uh, vote by the same name, right, he actually already makes this point very, very explicit. And he is actually struggling with the question of whether or not we can basically just hear one side and just rule based on that, right? And he has a long shuva where he's not exactly so sure that that's the case, but at the very end of it, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll read this uh, for you, um, he says the, uh, he says the, uh, the following, he says, right. So what he's dealing with is if you can only get one side to show up, right, the whole system basically falls apart. And what he's doing here, if you don't have no way to get them to show up in court, um, then if the system's going to shut down, the only fundamental alternative is he raises this idea of right, a, a temporary basically measure that goes beyond the letter of the law um, to basically allow the court to function, even though according to halacha, it shouldn't be able to do that. But it needs to do that, as he says, let's say to enable the Torah not to completely fall apart. So he's already writing this, I, you know, a couple hundred years before, 100 plus years before American Jewry. Um, and they're already realizing this basic fact. If you can't put people to show up to court, you don't have a legal system. Um, and the question becomes, what is the extent to which Bate Din have like looked to address that situation, acknowledge that situation? And I would say one of my one of the deeper frustrations that I have in this work is the overwhelming majority of Bate Din, basically when encountered with this situation that one side doesn't want to show up, whatever the issue is, but particularly with divorce, they basically say, ah, nothing we can do, right? And I'm not sure there's a, a greater need for Hura'at Sha'ah than this one, and I know we say that about a lot of contemporary issues, but this is like, it doesn't work, like the whole system of divorce, right, as halacha sees it, right, like can't work um, if we can't get somebody to show up, right? It'd be like having a courthouse and having crimes and laws on the books that say certain things are crimes, but literally you can't arrest people or bring them to court, right? It would just, it just, again, makes a total, you know, mockery of the, uh, of the, uh, of the system. Um, so right from the get-go, 
um, if that's going to be a baked-in approach, if, and when faced with difficult cases where one side doesn't want to give or receive the get, right? It's a complete non-starter, um, and there's no there's no out whatsoever, right? Like it just it ends there, um, and often in a very you know painful and horrific fashion. So one of I guess as a solution to some of these problems, I, I like the first half of the RCA halakhic prenup is an agreement, a binding arbitration agreement that we identify in advance before we get married, which Baytin will adjudicate any issue of divorce that arises. So at least, you know, the couple aren't arguing or fighting over which Baytin to go to, like that's already agreed to. And that's a way to give a Baytin jurisdiction to then like kind of evaluate the claims of the parties. So yeah, I, I want to again, emphasize once more, and I, I've said this many times, I'm sure you've said this thousands of times, right? The best way to address the Aguna problem is through the halachic prenuptial agreement because of exactly what you said, right? It, it basically, I don't remember if it serves as a Starbe Ruin or not. I don't think it technically does, but it does at the very least establish, Starbe Ruin is a document that says both parties are agreeing to mediation by a particular Baytin. Um, it means it already is like priest, it's already saying from the start, like, like, like as you said, like we acknowledge your authority um, and therefore you can try our case. I, I don't actually remember off the top of my head if the prenup does that. What the prenup does establish clearly, I mean, there are elements of the prenup where you can check that off and it does it. I don't know if the default is that position. What the prenup obviously does is it creates a chiyuv of mezonot or an additional chiyuv, right, from one party to the other when they're not living together. That's the second half. I think the two, I think it has two halves. I think the first half is identifying Baytin of America or, you know, the CRC Baytin or whichever Baytin you wish as the Baytin you'll go to for divorce, uh, for, for the forget uh, issues. And then um, the second half of this Mizono clause of uh, kind of the husband, you know, pledges to pay extra money if they're no longer living together. So his Jewish law obligation to support his wife, if they're not sharing a home, uh, has another way of being, uh, you know, being met. Right. And, and pe- when couples sign it, they don't think that they're actually making the halakhic system viable in that signing of the document. What they think they're doing is just making sure, and they should think this, right? They're protecting the women, usually, from becoming an aguna. But on a certain level, what that document is also doing in a, in a way that we don't always talk about, it is a kiddush Hashem, because it is saying that halakha can and should work um, if we're willing to, you know, step into the breach, Right. And then that's obviously not an example of a horat sha'ah, right? Like that's an example with legitimate precedent in halacha. But um, again, like if we know the system is broken and we're not finding ways to address that, right, we are inviting the law to exist in the breach, which means we're inviting criminality and we're inviting, you know, chilashem, right? That's the that's the fundamental challenge, which many bati din don't really, I would say, fully grasp, right? For them, the situation in which they have no authority and people can ignore them is just sort of like, oh, like it's not, it's not considered like, oh, we have a response. This is now a, a terrible situation. What is our responsibility then to address that in a way that enables halacha still to function in the way intended? And the next point I'll just make that picks up on that, right? What's the point of getting both parties together, right? In the Beitin, right? So what the Beitin is going to do is hear claims from both parties. Um, and what typically happens is that if um, one of the sides wants to divorce, the other one does not, they'll try to look at the actual what's going on in the relationship. And potentially they can make a determination in which the Beitzin will say, well, you know what, given what's going on in this marriage, you, the husband, have to give the get or you, the wife, have to receive the get. There's a fundamental concept of what is called chiyu get. Um, it appears already in Masechah Ketubot, uh, in which we reach a conclusion that this marriage has to end and the husband has to give the get whether he likes it or not. Now, this concept of chiyuv get 
is completely again not understood, not like learned. It's it's again, is it? It's in Masechet Ketubot. You've learned the Mishnayot on it, I'm sure, right? Here are the thing where you know under certain circumstances or conditions we say Yosi v'yitain Ketubah or Yosi v'lo yitain Ketubah, right? Like there's all these things, but there's a lot of circumstances that rise to the threshold of obligating the get. Now, you could say, well, what's the point of that? Like, they can obligate the get, but there has no teeth. So traditionally, I'll say a couple of things. Traditionally, chiyuv get was the point at which kfiyah, right, coercion could be used to ascertain the get. It's not always one-to-one. post games start debating. Maybe there are circumstances of chiyuv get where there can't be kfiyah. But let's just assume in sort of abstract, if there's a chiyuv for the classic stuff, like that implies that there is uh, kfiyah. So we can't do kfiyah. So what is it getting to us? So first off, it does make clear in a, from a sense of like the perspective of justice, right? Like that there's something wrong with this marriage and the husband has to give a get, right? There's an actual statement where somebody gets up and says, there's something wrong here. The husband is at fault. He has to, he has to give this get. That almost, that's just that, that, that moment rarely happens. And it almost never happens in Vate Din outside of Israel. In Israel, like this is a normal step of the process, right? Once they evaluate the claims, They'll come to that determination, you know, semi-regularly. Now, the other thing it does, which is important to understand from a halakhic perspective, is that there's often this sense, right, that the husband, it's really up to the husband to give the get whenever he wants. And he can make whatever kind of claims he wants on that, right? If he wants $100,000 to give the get, again, oi nebuch, like, what can we do? But that is a fun, this is the common sensibility. I mean, I've certainly had that in the past, right? But that is actually a fundamental distortion of the halacha. It's really anti-halachic. Because the fun, the basic point is is that when there's chiyu get, right, the husband cannot um, put place conditions on the giving of the get, right? Can't place tanaim on the giving okay. of the get. Clarify. So in in like go, all the way back in the Mishnah, it's obvious that there are circumstances where marriages should or must end, and. Yep. Classically, and even today, um, a bait in when husband and wife appear before the bait, and they might say, based on what you've told us about what's happening in this marriage, whether it's abuse or violence or just maybe even neglect or or or, or alienation, the bait in might say this marriage is over, and therefore you have an obligation, husband, to give again, and you wife have an obligation to receive the get, and this happened classically, and and that creates a religious obligation on the husband to give the get, on the wife, this religious obligation exists. There is no justification for then turning the get into a into a weapon into a tool he can't, he can't place conditions on it they're meaningless meaning like if he gives the get with tanayim the tanayim like essentially don't count now, again obviously everything in halacha has debates and there's minority opinions but what i'm sharing here is sort of the basic you know mainstream of you know approach and everything i'm describing is what happens in israel every single day in the rabbinic courts this is ex- literally exactly what happens in israel they don't always jump straight from chiyav to kfiyah they kind of like want to let it play out a little bit, but again, the same process is 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 completely um, you know straightforward. I, again, if you really want to, we can get into the weeds here, but I'll just I'll just note right. So because there's a debate about whether or not kfia work can be done and under what conditions, you had a whole stream of post who basically want to argue for a very high bar for kfia. What I mean by that is that it's only kfia if it meets like some very high level requirements. So Rabbi Herzog, for example, in the earlier days of the state, when they didn't necessarily, the Rabbi Nu didn't want to necessarily affirm kfia fully in a broad array of cases. So Rabbi Herzog is a famous like tshuva where he argues that imprisoning somebody's not kfia, right? Like, which is crazy, we might think. But, you know, again, the argument is made that, you know, our prisons are not like the prisons of old. You get three meals a day. Might get a daily minion in Daf Yomi, right? Like, so my, I'm using that as an example because, again, it's one of those things that we think 
um, we sort of pick up almost by osmosis certain understandings about this, about di divorce, about baitin, about uh, extortion, and that are completely not like grounded in, in what the halacha uh, actually says. I mean, one of the rewarding parts of fully immersing yourself in these issues is you realize that a lot of positions that if they were to play out publicly today would be labeled as liberal or progressive are completely like mainstream within the discourse, right? Like there are, while there is some debate about spousal abuse, right? There is a steady, steady stream of post scheme who basically make clear if there's spousal abuse, you know, physical abuse, right? That is grounds for, you know, chiyuv get and, and fiat get, right? So if the husband is, for example, like sleeping around with prostitutes, right? Like chiyuv get, fiat get. I mean, there's a whole list of the, the classic mooming of a husband, particularly if there's a psychological issues, right? Again, these are all like essentially automatic chiyuv slash, you know, uh, you know, fiat, uh, Fiat gets. And um, when you see like the affirmation of this in the sense that, again, the get is not like the husband's divine right, right? If you, if the rabbis say you're obligated and, and, and kafia can be done, right? We're basically saying is like, it's not all up to you, right? At all. And, and that, that sense has been completely, completely lost. And it's not like, again, we're going to step in and have Batid in America do kafia, but we have to understand how the system is supposed to work and how it's not working to be able to then look at these issues in a, in a, in a, in a way that is reasonable and enables justice to be applied. Oh, and what if, and what if um, it, it's just like a, maybe it's a harder case, a gray area. There's no abuse. There's no, um, no infidelity, but it's a, but one party wants the marriage to end. One party doesn't want the marriage to end. So this is a great case because one of the more fascinating things that has emerged here in Israel um, is the rec is the concept of what is called a dead marriage. Um, and this is already raised by Rabbi Rucham. Um, and then emphasized again by Chaim Palaji, two significant um, early Achronim, later Achronim, uh, you know, figures, um, in which uh, basically they say, um, if it's clear that the uh, couple is not living together as husband and wife, and if you were to ask, like, both of them, they'll say, like, I don't want to be living together with them as husband and wife, um, but one of the party is not, parties is not either giving or receiving the get that those are grounds for chiyuv get and fiat get, right? So it, it's a fascinating shita because to a certain extent, it doesn't emerge from the cases in the Mishnah. And there is a debate in halacha whether we, those cases in the Mishnah and the Gemara are like the only ones that can be or whether we can expand beyond them or not. And if we're going to expand beyond them, how exactly do we do that? We're making kolvahomers, how are we extrapolating? But um, for our purposes, the concept of the dead marriage is, is basically every Aguna case, right? At a certain point, you're saying, and, and, and again, it's basically either a year or 18 months, and and it's clear that they're not like, this isn't going to work. Um, then, And it doesn't matter if one side is at fault or the other. This is actually another important point. It's not only if like, well, if one side is at fault, then we can make this claim, but not the other. Um, and what is fascinating about this conceptual approach, this position, is that it has been affirmed again and again and again and again and again by the Rabbanuta Rashid, right, by the Batis in here in Israel. They are the ones who have essentially made this a mainstream position, um, which means that every every marriage when it comes to an end, and again, you know, you and I were joking beforehand, all marriages come to an end, right, either in death or divorce. Um, but what it means is when it does come to an end, right, Halacha is basically saying, like, this comes up in the post scheme here in Israel, they'll say, we don't do our official resuscitation to a dead marriage. Right? We're not grabbing the, the panels and saying clear and trying to jolt it back to life. It's done. And Halach has to reflect that reality by saying to the husband, you have to give the get and potentially even coercing him to give the get. It sounds like a progressive position. 
like oh it, you know these liberal rabbits no that's actually like a, has become has been has become a mainstream position so let's jump back to america where even if a baton has both parties appear before it and is or otherwise willing to declare there's an obligation to give and receive a get there's no coercive power to abate in here. So, so what happens? How can this be, you know? And then maybe also just maybe a profile of like, like, wh why wouldn't somebody give a get if, you know, if the marriage right. is here's, So this, so I'll say a couple of things. So first off, classically, what is often done, and people are aware of this, are the Harchakot um, Rabbeinu Tam, right? They were going to use social pressure, social measures to basically isolate the husband, um, say people shouldn't, he shouldn't be given a, you know, counted in a minion, given an aliyah, you know, we'll even go so far as protest the husband and, there's there's ways in which that can be effective, but the problem is is this goes back to you said sort of the profile, right? Like keep in mind, which we haven't even spoken about this, right? In cases, a lot of these cases, or maybe all of these cases, there is a civil divorce, right? And the civil divorce comes to an end. So when the husband says, "I'm not living with you," we're already civil divorced, right? Like I don't want to give you the get. Right? You can't in any way frame that as some sort of claim like he really still wants to be married to her. Right? So there is like a point here where we're not just like dead marriage. We're like, you know, dead and buried six feet under the ground marriage. Um, and uh, the question is like who would want to do that? Right? Especially after the civil divorce, maybe the wife gave, had to give up stuff she didn't like or whatever. Like why? what's the motivation? So it should be very clear, especially after the civil divorce, the only motivation is to punish her. Right? It, it, it's cruelty. Right. And it requires a certain personality who wants to do that. Um, the cases that we get at the IBD often or almost all of them fall into that category. And that sort of takes us to sort of the other like dimension of all this is what happens when you've done everything and you can't get the get. You followed every strategy, you've taken it all to the end of the line. Um, and that is where the IBD will look at seeing whether there are grounds to determine the marriage null and void, um, either because perhaps there were not aiding who were kosher. Right. Or we'll look at, again, the whole idea of Kiddusha Ta'ut, right? A Kiddusha made an error. What if the, there were things that were wrong about the husband at the, at the time they got married, significant things that the wife never knew about um, and only discovered much later on or afterwards in, in, in the marriage? And, and the truth is, with that, that's a whole debate. It's obviously it's sort of a controversial area. But one thing you have to understand is that the husbands that are the kind of people that basically want to do this just to punish their wives and will resist social measures, social pressure. These are also individuals who are have some serious, serious problems, like deeply serious, often psychological, personal problems that in their own right often rise to the level of what we might call a mum gadol, right? That there's something so deeply wrong about this person that if the wife had known it when she got into the marriage, um, that would be sufficient to say that she entered into the marriage in error, it's null and void. And I'm not saying that the fact he refuses to give the get proves that that in itself is the mumgadol, but it often is indicative of the kinds of people who have these problems. So I, I cannot really think of a case in which um, a guy, we had a, went, came to the end of the line and it was clear that the husband was just pretty much a normal guy, but was simply being difficult about this. Every single case, there is a huge trail of serious dysfunction. The challenge is sometimes fitting it into some of the classical categories of how we think about Mungadol, right? There's sort of a series of classic examples, um, impotence, um, serious psychological dysfunction, um, and, 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 and a few others that basically end up being how we think about what a, 
what a moon guttle is, or sometimes the moon guttle isn't just there's something like very specific wrong with a husband that's serious. A lot of times it's just deception. Husband like presents all sorts of things about himself as they enter the marriage um, that are simply not true, right? Husband hides a very serious criminal record. Husband um, uh, claims he's much wealthier than he is, um, and he deceives actively the wife about that, right? Like he's actually engaging basically in fraud. We have a case where the husband uh, forged the civil marriage, right? Which is just a fundamental deception on the entry into the uh, into the marriage. So there's a lot of deception that also uh, takes place too in these and in, in, in the in, in the entry into the marriage, and that can often rise to the level in which one can make the determination that it was a uh, a ma- you know kiddushet ta'ut, essentially a marriage made in error. So that's sort of, I guess, that's like the. I don't know, like the, the big guns you have in reserve for like the most intractable cases, you go back and say, like this this type of, this husband who's refused to cooperate, to, to listen to the orders of a bait in, et cetera, et cetera. And like what, often when in plan examination is a pattern of abuse or a pattern of psychiatric illness or a pattern of, of some sort of um, a diagnosis, I guess, that sort of meets. Right, so it can range everything from psychiatric disorders um, in which there are diagnoses Two, um, and this is something which I would say we, we, we um, I don't want to say we push the envelope, but we expand beyond the sort of existing precedent. But uh, again, spousal abuse in its own right has not historically been seen as a mungadol. What I mean by that is like if a husband um, is abusing his wife, right, during the marriage, we can't just automatically say, ah, oh, he's an abuser, he's a horrible person. Oh, if she only knew this was the kind of person that she was uh, when they got married, like, she never would have done this. But one of the things you do realize today, and this maybe this is part of the global you know, information age, is that you can actually track down information about people much easier than ever was the case in the past. And you know, the truth always is, if somebody is violent in a marriage, right? They are violent often before that marriage, oftentimes in previous relationships. I and mean, we've had like a dozen cases where the guy is violent in the marriage and has arrests and convictions for spousal abuse from previous marriages. Right. So that's an example where again, like because this existed before the marriage and it's very clear, right. It's much easier to make the claim of, you know, the, you know, the top, you know, the top, um, the top. Yeah, so I want to like really like hone in on that. Cause I think it's a subtle difference. Cause like in, you could say like every, not every, but many couples who divorce, they could say, well, had I known this marriage and a divorce, I never would have gotten married to me. I regret the marriage. You know, had I known that I wouldn't want to be married to this person, I never would have gotten married in the first place. And that's not a halakhic argument to avoid, um, again, just to say, well, I regret the marriage. Right. So Ramosha Feinstein talks about Ikarani Suin, right? Something that is about the, the moon has to relate to the very essence of the marriage itself. That's why impotence and sexual dysfunction is often like considered like a, a very clear example of, of, of precedent in this area. Because as the Gemara says, like everybody knows, right? It's because of that sexual dimension on some level in the, in the marriage. Um, but the other principle, again, I'm, I'm not saying these are firm rules, but I'm trying to sort of distill them down. But um, in terms of a shota, right, the Gemara, somebody who has a not psychologically, um, they, they are declared to be, um, what's the word, like incompetent, we might say, or not having full mental capacity, at least not at all times, right? So um, one of the ideas that comes up is, right, that you can't kind of live with a snake in your bed. Um, and what this gets at is the principle that if the problems are such that married life, stable, minimally stable married life is fundamentally impossible, then that is already getting at, like, you know, again, 
the kinds of the of dysfunction that we would say would to rise to Lum Gadol. So um, again, oftentimes to a very large degree, significant spousal abuse is related to psychological issues in the husband, and you see that. Meaning the husbands that are, are abusing their wives are also doing other things that are clearly indicative of serious psychological problems. Like we think of the abuser as like this tough, I mean, this is maybe my own distorted thinking, but like when you're growing up and you watch like television and movies, like you think of the spousal abuser as like this tough guy, right? Like a manly man who's just like trying to show the wife who's in charge. You don't expect that spousal abuser also to have like nervous breakdowns and to be paranoid in ways that make them look like powerless and helpless too. Right. So that's what you start seeing a lot of the times in these cases. It's not this sort of uh, stereotypical tough guy. It's a guy who's literally, you know, not, in, you know, not in control of himself and his life in a, in a, in a variety of, uh, of significant ways. If the, if this pattern of behavior developed after the marriage, though, this solution wouldn't work, right? You'd have to, that, that's. But we always, we always have to show that, well, let me say this. Classically, you need you want to be able to show that the moon preexisted the marriage. That's the whole idea. It's on entry. We have to say that it was there. Um, one of the things which we do look at and write about um, in our two vote is that if, if the signs of the moon begin basically very early on in the marriage, sometimes you even see this like the wedding night, like you, a guy who's got serious problems. Sometimes wedding is a very stressful, intense event, and the wedding night can be one that triggers all sorts of things. Um, but if basically certain behavior begins very early on, you know, we can you can argue that there's a hazaka that it preexisted. So that that's another example. And you see that by other issues here. It's not like that's not like just the chiddush of ours that you see that uh, by other issues, even related to marriage itself. When we're trying to look at the partners and make certain assumptions about what was there uh, beforehand. And thankfully, again, you can there's a lot you can talk to a lot of people. You can you know we, we spend a lot of time doing background checks and looking through criminal databases, looking at arrest history. Right, looking at employment history. I mean, we really get into the thick of it to try to establish. Um, we don't hire, you know, um, you know, private investigators at this point. But uh, Barry Dollinger, who is our executive director, is a lawyer, been a practicing lawyer for you know over a decade, um, and he does employ a lot of those skills though to dig stuff up. And you have to like, there's there's a there's a um, very much like a detective aspect to this work. Because it's rarely the case that the individual presentation of the details is sufficient to figure things out. It often requires speaking to a bunch of other people, digging up paperwork, and really making sure you have a grasp on what's what's going on. So you have two more two more questions. First question is just circling back to Israel, where the courts do have the power of coercion. You would think there would be would be like a paradise for um, the right. quick, efficient, you know, res- resolution of Jewish divorces, but it's obviously not the case. Um, what's the problem there, when where, you, where the courts have the power of traditional Jewish communities to enforce their decisions? Right. So I'll, I'll say that's a good question, and I'll say a couple of things. So the first thing we always have to keep in mind is like divorce is not a happy process anywhere. Meaning the process of divorce is not one that which people are going to be smiling both sides, you know, beginning, middle, and end. Right. Like if you've seen any movies about divorce in America, let's say, right, in a place in a circumstance where, you know, the courts are ostensibly have some level of neutrality. Right. Like it's often as ugly as as can be. So just that it's very adversarial. I mean, there's a million reasons why this is the case. So I just want to note that, like, I, I don't think you're ever going to find a legal system that turns divorce into something that is routine and easy. Even if we say there's no fault divorce and, you know, anybody can end it at any time. Right. Marriage consists of a sort of legal entanglement that is not so easy to pull apart. Right. Like we know this financially, uh, there's children like these are things that are not simple to 
to uh, to resolve when a marriage comes to an end. So that's like you have to keep in mind. Like this isn't simple or easy stuff, right? The second thing we have to keep in mind is well, I just, I argued for example about the the dead marriage position, right? That says if a marriage a couple have been living together twelve months, eighteen months, right? We can basically say there's an obligation for a dead, uh, you know, coerced that gets. So the problem with uh, Bati Din, and this is in some ways where they kind of differ a bit from secular courts, is that even though um, Bati Din can sort of establish certain positions and precedents, no court is ever bound by those precedents. Meaning whatever the Tel Aviv court rules doesn't bind even the Tel Aviv court in the future. And whatever like the, the, the rabbinic Supreme Court, so to speak, rules, that doesn't really bind you know, lower courts. There's a, a tremendous amount of what we might say judicial autonomy or rabbinic autonomy. And if you're a rabbi, if you spend time in halacha, you sort of understand that, right? Like the Shulchan Aruch may bind you, Acharonim may bind you, but like what's going on, the Beit in, you know, by the rabbi in the synagogue down the way, it shouldn't necessarily bind, you know, me. And even as a rabbi, as a synagogue rabbi, there are times you come down one way and then circumstances may look pretty similar, but they're different enough that you have to, you don't want to feel bound to what you said before and you come down in, you know, a different way. So the fact that precedent is not automatically binding across the board also leads to a lot of variability. And again, I think we have to be clear, certainly there's a not insignificant portion of the Dayanim in rabbinic courts here in Israel who see their responsibility as being the bulwark against the secularization of Jewish society that pushes towards, you know, at, you know, no-fault divorce, ending marriages, you know, basically at will. Um, and particularly for those from, the, you know, the Haredi world, Right, like they're, they're operating under the assumption they, they actually write this in the baked in chuvas sometime. I'm not, it's not like I, you have to be a sociologist to, to pick this apart. Right, they're clear like, about how they feel a need to hold the line. Um, and that leads them to, you know, kind of overcompensate, uh, to say the least. Um, and um, it leads to positions that are, I would say, unjust and unethical towards women at times here. Right, so you can have court cases. Um, where it's handled like according to halacha in a way that resolves it in a manner that I think a lot of us would feel is ethical and, and reflects justice, but there's no guarantee of that. Mm -hmm. And and I you know there's always extreme cases. Look, every legal system has extreme cases. So again, it's not like halacha is the only one that does that has them. But there's enough of them in halacha. Uh, I'm sorry, in in rabbinic courts here in Israel that kind of make your you know they're right when they come down with positions where you know the husband has tried to kill the wife. And the rabbinic court is basically saying, no, 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 like, let's give this more time or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. That's not even consistent within positions of halacha. I mean, the halachic positions are clear. Like, again, if a wife is in danger, life is in danger, right? Like, she has to be able to get out of the, um, you know, the marriage. I'll just, I'll just make this point, even though it's, like, not fully formalized. It's a very important, just formalized in halacha. It's an important conceptual point. So there's a classic mumi that are, are brought up in the Mishnah for reasons that you would coerce again. Mumin did. Uh, blemishes or issues with the husband. So one of them is re'achapeh, right? Like the husband has bad breath, right? And again, when you read that as a modern reader, you're like, well, what the heck does that mean? Like, you know, bad breath may be bad, but that's like grounds to force the husband to give a divorce because he's got bad breath. So again, without necessarily knowing exactly historically what that means, on some level, it makes the married life very, very difficult. But the Yerushalmi already points this out. And it's only quoted by a few poskim. There's a Kabbalah Homer that Yushalmi makes that basically says, like, well, wait a second. If his bad breath is sufficient to force him to end the marriage, then certainly high nefesh for her, any kind of, like, danger for her should be, like, sufficient to get her out of the uh, of the marriage. And poskim, like, use that, especially when it comes to, like, issues of, like, 
spousal abuse or any kind of like risks for the wife, like this should be obvious. Like if we're going to let you out for force them out for something more minor, like call the home we're going to let you out if your life's even remotely in danger. But that position, which seems so obvious, again, is not something that is always, you know, presented as again, sort of the binding and definitive in rabbinic courts here in, um, in Israel. And while there is some oversight and accountability on rabbinic courts here, certainly infinitely more than exists in outside of Israel, um, you know, the system is still really complicated because for the most part, you can't really have easily, you know, Knesset legislation that's binding on the rabbinic courts, right? It's, it's, it's complicated. I mean, you, it's not impossible, but it's not like in America where if you don't like the civil laws, you can go to the voting booth and like, Vote, out, vote in judges, vote out judges, like have referendums or have politicians that are working to change the law. Like that's doesn't quite work that way here for, you know, a whole host of reasons. OK, so so my, my, my last question on, on this, I, I guess, like what what's what's the is there a more optimistic like some future on the horizon where we, you know, Rabbi Dollinger won't have to, uh, you know, case by case and, you know, hunt down this recalcitrant husband's, you know, shady past to free his his wife. Like, can't there be, like, that doesn't, also doesn't sound like, a, you know, this like shining example of justice and, you know, ethical, you know, holy dissolution of marriage when we're uh, case by case, you know, searching through people's uh, dark pasts to uncover some, you know, personality blemish that would invalidate the marriage. Can't there be a system that empowers men and women to end dead marriages and find better futures for themselves without the need for, you know, for this type of investigation on a, on a case right. by so case. The, like, as I said, right, the halakhic prenuptial agreement is still the best tool to, to solve that problem. And it works not a hundred percent of the time, but a lar- very large portion of the time. Um, Look, I'll, I'll say it this way, like if you're because we still tend to be focused more on the baked in perspective, because that's where you know we're dealing with live cases. There's people there like it's not we're not always thinking uh, prophylactically. How do we you know create more mechanisms to prevent issues in the future? Mostly because that's not where the need is right now. We have that. That's called the, the prenuptial agreement. So right? the question is, how do we deal with it? Like, you know, after the fact. So this is like a challenge. Right? How do we how do we get legal systems to work in ways that are credible, legitimate, and effective and, and achieve justice, right? So I could almost like start this answer by asking you, David, like, what's your opinion of the American Supreme Court? Is that a court that works to achieve justice in a way that we think is legitimate and equitable, right? It, legal systems become politicized remarkably easily, right? That's like, they always were politicized, but we have a deeper awareness now how politicized they are. That is certainly true in America. Israel is going through a major, you know, constitutional crisis around this exact same point, right? So, you know, the question becomes is how do we create a legal system that on some level, again, is has credibility, is legitimate. And it has, for it to be legitimate, it has to be legitimate in the eyes of the people who, you know, it's responsible for in some way. Um, so look, from my perspective, I think one of the most important things that has to change is not seeing Bati Din as these sort of like secretive hermetic institutions that like nobody really knows what they do or where they are. And we have to fundamentally bring them out into the light of day which means that they all have to be held accountable um, and be transparent and have very clear procedures about what they do and why they do and be held accountable to those procedures. They have to know people are watching and they have to know that they cannot claim any kind of like absolute authority. I mean, it's a bizarre thing. They know they're powerless, but they also love to claim this like absolute authority. And it's a bit absurd. You know, one of the one of the example paradigms I've been thinking about, which I think can be something of a model for this to improve this, is the way that kashrut evolved in America, 
right? So if you're familiar with kosher, it used to be essentially the Wild West in the first half of the 20th century, or anybody could claim to be kosher, and it was like, you know, what are you going to do, you know? And, and there were millions of, like, everybody claimed to be kosher, and, like, most of it wasn't kosher, right? Even from people who looked as from as can be. You walk in the butcher shop, looks like you're talking to this person who literally stepped out of, you know, Fiddler on the Roof, and the truth was, like, the food was as, tra you know, the meat was as trafe as, uh, as can be. So what changed things, especially as we move towards industrial kosherut, right? It has to do with the way that the kosherut agencies have to be transparent and effectively through competition regulate themselves. Um, and again, a big part of that accountability and transparency comes from the consumer, right? The consumer has to basically say, like, I want to know what like this kosherut status means. I want to know what their standards are. Right. And, and, and I, if I don't like that kosherut standard, I'm going to go to a different one because I think it's better uh, in some way or another. So that process of, again, uh, transparency and accountability has to be fundamental. And I'll be honest, you know, starting with us as Orthodox shul rabbis, even though I'm not one anymore. I mean, I was, I was, I was in that position for a long time. We kind of, again, leave the faith in to kind of just do its thing. Like it's like beyond our level. Like it's often it's above my pay grade. Right? That's the way school rabbis will often talk. Well, it really isn't, right? Because again, the basics of this are, you know, and think if you can learn kashrus, you can learn the basics of all that I'm talking about in about one third of the time or a quarter of the time it takes you to learn kashrus. Um, and yes, the devil is always in the details. But again, like as you know, when you're a shul rabbi, right, if you learn kashrus well, decently well, you know how to answer most questions. Like you have a sense of like what's reasonable and what's not reasonable. So I think the fundamental lack of, of understanding and education and knowledge and that how that lack of knowledge has been covered up by a certain ideological sense of like, like I said, like we don't, we can't know, we don't know, like what, oh, our, oh never, what can we do? It's just, as a congregation rabbi, I would never think of like outsourcing, you know, other life cycle events to people, uh, you know, anonymous uh, rabbinic bureaucrats, right? It's unthinkable. No, you're hitting it on the head, David, right? Think about how this is like one of the most important and sensitive life cycle events that somebody's ever going to go through. And it's basically being done by unaccountable people. You don't even know who they are. I mean, a Beitin can be anybody who like are dying, anybody who just like says I'm a dying, right? They are complete. I mean, it, there's very little credibility uh, to any. So I'll say this. The, in America, the Beitin of America, I can say with certainty is a credible Beitin. That is all the things I'm talking about. It's accountable. It's transparent. It's very clear about things, and they're working to hold to not just the letter of halacha, but the, these principles that I'm that I'm talking about here. Uh, but the BDA is has, is limited, and it, it it's not well. It calls itself of America. It it, can't, it certainly cannot handle all the cases in America by any stretch of the means. And part of the reason we exist is the level of energy and resources it takes to resolve some of these kinds of very difficult cases. I think I can honestly say it's it's not where the BDA is oriented. Like they, you know, they're handling a lot of different, all different kinds of things. This is the one thing that we're, you know, focusing on. Uh, but Rav Schachter himself, you know, has articles about this in Omni uh, Magazine from I don't know over a decade ago, where he himself says like every bot baked in is basically corrupt, and you really can't trust them, and um, or they don't know, or the dynamic don't know what they're doing, um, and you know that is the reality in a lot of these places, and and I think we have to treat it. Like we would, you know, in a professionalized way, which again goes back to this basic sense of I keep using the words accountability, transparency. Um, but again, these are communal institutions. That's what we don't realize because whatever authority they have, and this goes back to where I was starting with, it only can be derived from the communal buy-in. 
that is the fundamental halacha on a certain level, right? Rabbinic authority may give the appearance that it comes down from Sinai, but as we know, smicha ends already after the destruction of Bayacheni. And at that point, right, rabbinic authority stems primarily from right, the buy-in of the community in, behind it, right, into the rabbi, into the system. So in a certain sense, if we're going to pretend like these Bati didn't have any authority at all, right, then it can only become because we're buying into them, which also means we're holding them accountable. And and, and that is something that we sort of, um, you know, uh, you know, kind of miss. We just sort of somehow the Baitin's been there. It's kind of like it's the Baitin that is responsible, like, for this area now. So Ramosha is a chuva where he says there's no Bati Din Kavua in New York and presumably America as well. Right. Like we can't there's no bait in with an established fixed status of having a presumption of authority in a particular geographical area. And Rav Moshe's reason for that is because that would only be true if there was some sort of process in which the whole community is buying into that bait in, like choosing the Dayanim. Right. So if you have a, a bait in in which the members of the Dayanim, where there's a segment of communal rabbis, let's say, that are excluded from choosing the Dayanim, then that bait in doesn't have like official a, a local authority over the whole community because there's a certain democratic ethos that has to exist for that authority to be um, to be real. Um, and and again, like these are all institutions, even though they're often run by rabbis. Again, if you're a non-orthodox rabbi, they don't necessarily look like you. Uh, but there's no reason we should absent ourselves, whether it's us as rabbis or as communities, from again being responsible for them because we're the only ones who give them authority in that way. So, so say, say just like, you know, somebody wants to learn more about your work with the International Baitin, what you have a website, you have materials, what, what, what's, what's the next step for somebody who wants, listener who wants to follow up with and, and learn more about, about your work and get involved. You can certainly look at our website. Um, I will say that um, we are going to have a series of materials that will be published in the next, over the next year. Uh, we're going to have a book of Chuvot. We're also publishing a lot of like what I've spoken about today. Um, we're going to be publishing what we're going to tentatively call like a divorce guide that basically walks through all these kinds of issues about how divorce is supposed to look and how Bate Ding are supposed to function vis-a-vis divorce and all the ways in which the system can be abused. It's a little disturbing to realize, uh, David, that there's not a single resource right now. I'm not sure there's been one for 50, 60, who knows how many years that actually outlines those things, like in any kind of detail. Like, it's a little crazy. Like, if you think about as rabbis, all the resources that exist in all, like, the major areas, the fact there's not, like, one book that really goes through these issues on divorce, it shows you. That doesn't happen by chance. There's a certain, I would say, like, ideological obscuring that takes place here. Um, so, like, not, not look in that area. Um, in a large part because, like, the powerlessness of the rabbis in that area leads us as rabbis to not want to like address it fully uh, and take take responsibility for it, right? In some ways, it's easier to kind of say, I never, it's a Hashem, what can we do? Than like actually take responsibility, for, you know, for you know for it. So um, that's something we're going to be coming out with that I'm working a lot, spending a lot of time on. I think it's going to be extremely important because you, you get divorced. The first thing, you know, what do you do when a congregant, God forbid, has a family member who passes away, right? Like, well, when you're a shul rabbi, I used to have in my office a stack of moist lambs, right, the Jewish way in death and mourning, right? There's no reason that when a congregant comes to you and says, like, I think I'm getting divorced, right, male or female, that you shouldn't be able to give them a similar um, uh, a similar book. Because in truth, like, death isn't easy. Remember I said marriages end in two ways, death or divorce, right? In some ways, we are better at handling the death side 
maybe in many ways we're better handling the debt side than we are handling the uh, the divorce side. Uh, and like I said, we have to take responsibility. For that. Look, there's good reasons. Divorce is messy. It's ugly. It's like we see it as a failure, right? Like it's like we recoil from it. Like it's understandable, like why we're not willing to deal with it. Um, but we have to because it's, it's Torah as much as anything else. Last thing I'll say, you know, Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, this commentary on the Chumash, right? He says it very, very clearly, right? That the whole like system of marriage and divorce, right? That the very fact that Jewish divorce exists and exists in a way that's supposed to work is what makes marriage work, right? That on a certain level, it's like what makes marriage work is the fact that divorce works. So when divorce doesn't work, in a certain way, we can say marriage doesn't work. I'll say it again in a different rabbinic language. The Rashba on Masechet Gitin, right? There's one Mishnah on Masechet Gitin that has to do with fear, one particular Mishnah. And the Rashba points out there, um, why is it that rabbis, after smicha has come to an end, right, are still able to do kfiyah? Because you might think that kfiyah, like other criminal punishments, can only be done by a beitin of musmachim, right, and under certain circumstances, right? So the answer that's given to the Gemara there is the same answer that's given in Masechet Sanhedrin, is kishlichu uh, right? That um, basically, batitin today operate as shluchim, as the agents of uh, batitin of the past that did have uh, smicha, but we only allow that in certain limited uh, limited areas. And one of them it has to do with like um, loans and financial disputes, and the other one has to do one of the other major areas is um, being able to coerce gittin. And the Rashba says there, well, why did the rabbis make an exception for gittin? Right. So what the Rashba says is the reason the rabbis made an exception that even batitin without smicha can do coercion is that um, Jewish women won't enter into a marriage unless they know they can get out. Now, you might say in a very strange kind of way, well, wait a second, the system is broken and that Jewish women are getting married all the time. That that disproves the chazaka that the Rashba is talking about, that women will only enter into a marriage unless they um, think they can get out. But here's the thing, like we have to understand, every woman who gets married today thinks they're going to be get, being able to get out if they need to, even if they've heard about the Aguna problem, even if they're somewhat aware of these issues, because they're Jews and they believe in the basic justice of Torah. They believe the Torah is not, does not exist um, to enslave them. They believe the Torah exists to bring you know holiness to their life. That's holiness into marriage and holiness out of marriage. Um, and I, I don't think any woman can conceive of a system that basically is going to leave them in a position uh, where they can be, you know, fundamentally tortured by their, um, you know, by their, by their, by their husband. Um, and I think again that, that that's the sensibility we have to to bring to this. Yeah, fair. Thank you. Thank you. So, so this is a very um, again not just because um, we're learning Masechet and Dafiomi, but just as um, this is a, it's a very important. You know, this comes up in in our communal life uh, from time to time. Uh, I think all Jews need to be aware of this. So thank you very much. It's a very fitting final interview as well. Like I'm, you know. Um, uh, we, we've, yeah, this is my, my, my last podcast, uh, here at the Shul. So I, I it's, uh, I sort of, I'm very, you know, after, I guess, four or five years of recording these, uh, intermittently. And so, uh, it's sort of a very, um, um, even though this is not a pleasant topic, I think, um, I'm really sort of grateful that you came on and we had the time to have this, this final, uh, this final interview with my tenure at, at the Shul. Um, just uh, maybe just a few more minutes before we, we, we end the conversation. You and I have had the occasion to speak as friends over the years about the rabbinic profession. You've now, I guess, transitioned. You've sort of left the uh, the congregate life of a congregational rabbi. You're now an educator and, and working for the Beit Din. Uh, I'm just uh, signing up for another tour of duty uh, in a few in a few weeks. And uh, um, 
Yeah, so maybe just I don't know, like, like what, what sort of what have you what have you experienced as as this and sort of different ways of working as a rabbi and sort of some sort of uh, end this conversation with some reflections on this uh, this strange uh, career that we've uh, both inhabited uh, over over these years. No, so I, I appreciate that, David. So you know, in our in our conversations about this, and again, I, I sort of have the benefit of of a, a perspective, for lack of a better expression, because I'm not in it. And when you're not in it, you're able to look at it differently. You can't look at it when you're inside of it. That's the whole point. You can't see yourself when you're inside of something, right? Like you have to step out of it to be able to, to get into it. So I, I, I appreciate that sense of uh, perspective. And one of the things I, I've shared with you, and I, as you know, I'm very much drawn to uh, psychoanalysis, to the writings of uh, Sigmund Freud, um, and how they can be used to think through Jewish text, Jewish thought, um, theology. Uh, and one of the comments that Freud makes in almost his like, very last essay, it's an essay called um, Analysis Terminable and Interminable. And in the essay, he's dealing with the question of like, how do you know when analysis comes to an end, right? You go to a, to an analyst, a psychoanalyst, because you got problems. Like, how do you know when you're done? Like, and the truth is, it's not so clear, right? Like when that process, we know that it comes to an end. And part of the possibility, maybe it never really comes to an end, right? That there's always more, you know, work to be done. But on the other hand, like, again, like that's sort of just self-justifying for psychoanalysis, right? Come to me every, you know, twice a week forever. Right? As you know, your father is a you know, psychoanalyst, so like you... you my mother, my mother, my mother. And, and so in, 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 that, es in that essay, um, Freud is dealing with the difficulties of being an analyst. Like it's a very complicated thing, in part because we don't really know what success looks like. That's a big part of the challenge he's trying to deal with in that essay. Um, and he notes that psychoanalysis can fit into what he calls three impossible professions. Right. One is psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis. The, uh, the other is education. And the third is what he says, government. So basically being an analyst, being a teacher and being like a leader, right? Being a politician, right? Those are the three impossible uh, professions. And he doesn't quite tease out exactly, at least at first, what makes them all impossible. When I first came across that, what I was immediately struck by is the simple fact that being a synagogue rabbi always means being a psychoanalyst. It means being a teacher slash educator, and it means being like a politician slash leader, right? So it's bad enough to have one impossible profession. Being a show rabbi combines all three. Now, you might say, again, like who in their right mind would ever want to do such a thing? But on the other hand, what I will say is in some ways being a show rabbi is the most pure form of being a rabbi that there is because, because it's so hard, right? That just speaks to the fundamental right? Importance of it, of it all, right? On a certain level. Look, like I am a teacher. I, I do a little bit of analysis, so to speak, in some of the individual relationships I work on, I, I've worked through as a rabbi. I'm not, not a leader politician like I used to be, right? Like, but who is, for example, the classic figure in Jewish history that involved, it combines all those three, like, um, like a show rabbi? Oh, it's Moshe Rabbeinu, right? Moshe Rabbeinu is the one who has to be the analyst for the Jewish people, Right, get them out of idolatry, their fixations on idolatry to something else. He's the he's the teacher par excellence, right? Moshe Rabbeinu, he's the one who teaches us Torah. Um, and he is the he's the leader, right? He's the in some Hazal even in the sense of he's the Melech, right? He's the one in charge, leading us, leading us through. And and sure rabbis have to walk in those shoes. They are somewhat impossible shoes. You should know Freud himself had a bit of an obsession with uh, with Moses um, in his writings. Um, he obviously famously one of his last works is Moses and Monotheism, but even earlier than that, he's writing, uh, you know, essays on Moses. He's kind of transfixed as Moses because he clearly Freud sees himself as a Moses-like figure in the same way that Moses founds Judaism, founds Monotheism. Freud is some ways like the same sort of father figure for psychoanalysis. 
And I'll just point out again, too, that as Moses constantly has to face rebellions from the people um, who don't really want to follow the path exactly the way that God and he are laying it out, so too Freud throughout his career is, is constantly dealing with these sort of rebellions from his students. All of his close students basically say, you know what, Freud, your psychoanalysis thing is really cool and I like, like a lot of it, but here's where I differ from you. And he's constantly faced with his closest students kind of like basically rejecting him or him rejecting them as a result of, of that. Um, so Freud knows how hard it is to be Moses. And one of his famous essays is actually about, um, Mike, I think it's Michelangelo's famous statue of Moses. Yeah. And Freud specifically wants to tie it to the moment when Moses is coming down with the tablets yeah. uh, when the people are worshiping the golden calf, right? Like that, that moment of profound, you know, crisis um difficulty right and that's the moment like maybe moshe his most important moment in a certain sense um that he has to rise to being a analyst teacher and leader in that um in in, in that moment so the the other thing i'll say is that what makes these professions all impossible that psychoanalysis is deeply aware of is that there to be a teacher rabbi or analyst or politician or leader is to be in a position of transference what that means is we don't look at leaders teachers and analysts like everybody else, right? They are figures of power and importance to us such that we project all these other things onto them, right? Our relationship to them is not like other relationships. We're, they're basically like our parents, for better and for worse. And, you know, for Freud, transference is love, but it's a very, you know, strange kind of love. What it really reflects is this profound emotional, uh, psychological investment that we have in that person. What they do matters. And what's so difficult often about being a shul rabbi is the power comes from transference, as Freud notes, because you can use that transference to get at the deeper issues. But the challenge of transference is that you're never fully in control of the meaning of your actions, because people are always going to interpret what you say and what they do through that transference. And that, to a large extent, I think is what makes the job, you know, somewhat impossible, is because you don't, you can't control like where it's going and what it's going to look like, right? The analyst does have the controlled setting of the clinic, right? Like they, they and, and that's a space where when issues come up, when there's transference, counter-transference problems, like it, you can work it out, right? For a shul rabbi, when issues come up, that come up through the transference and people are rebelling or people are struggling or there's crisis, right? You don't get to control, like again, you can control what you do, but you, don't, you can't control how people um, uh, relate to that. And I think Moshe Rabbeinu like understood that, right? If there's any, you know, when Moshe Rabbeinu is sad when he goes to the mountaintop and realizes he can't enter into the promised land. I don't think it's just because like he wants to go to the land of Israel and it's like a dream for him. And he's just like, oh, I don't have that opportunity. I think he also realizes on some level, and again, I may be projecting, but is that he knew he did everything he could and it still wasn't enough. Right? Mm -hmm. He did everything he could and it wasn't because it's not within his control. Right? That's what makes it impossible. But I think, you know, the challenge of it all is, um, and again, Moshe is the model here, right? Like, we may not be able to go into the promised land with the people, but we're doing our damnedest to make sure that they can find their way there, even if we can't be there you know, for them. And I, I want to conclude just by reading you um, a section from a rabbi who really, I think, understood this. Uh, Chicago rabbi, like yourself, David, Arnold Wolf, um, very interesting thinker. He has a deep uh, affiliation, affinity for Franz Rosenzweig, who's also of great interest to me. Um, and he really gets Rosenzweig, unlike many others. Uh, and um, he's a profound, Wolf is profound, like deeply profound in ways that he doesn't get anywhere near enough credit for. There are many um, great people who are considered these great American Jewish rabbinical thinkers. Um, he is above many of the names that get thrown about as, as, as if they're important. This is my personal opinion. 
So he is he has an essay, opening essay of the book, even of Kalaiva's collected writings, which is getting at this question of um, uh, what does it mean to be a rabbi, right? And the uh, the book I should even point out is titled "Unfinished Rabbi," and that's already a certain psychoanalytic orientation because he realizes that like there's no way to define what a rabbi is. That's why there's no easy way to define what rabbinic success looks like, right? What is success when you're a rabbi? Making people more from getting them to be more ethical to each other, growing the size of the shul, making sure there's a better kiddish, better kids programming, right? Like having spiritual davening so that people feel something, right? All of that, none of the above, right? Like it's not clear, but it means to be a rabbi is is essentially an unfinished uh, project. But his first essay that they put in the book is called um, Rabbi as Teacher. Um, And I think that is, or he says the rabbi is a teacher, right? There's one thing we can affirm about what a rabbi is, uh, it is that they are a teacher. And he says, rabbis are not, in my view, spiritual leaders, bosses, administrators, organizers, fundraisers, or PR types. We are teachers hired to teach and only to teach. Now, again, we all know that's not true. Like when I was a rabbi, we did a million, just all those things. I'm pretty sure I was the custodian and like, you know, the, the kiddish, you know, cooker at times, you know what I mean? Like you're everything, right? But what he does get at in a fundamental way is anybody else can do all of those things. Right. If there's one thing the rabbi can do, and it's so easy to forget this as a shul rabbi, because all that other stuff is super important too. Ain kemach, ain tarot, like we get it. But at the same time, other people can do the kemach. There's only one person who can be responsible for Torah. People can be everybody else can be responsible for, for everything else. There's only one person who's gonna be responsible for Torah in a, in a synagogue or in any fundamental communal setting. Um, and that's somebody who sees themselves as responsible for it. Um, and the way he goes on to define that, of course, the power of being a teacher is that, again, it's hierarchical, but it's also not hierarchical, right? Like, you know, as it says in Berkeyava, right? You know, it's not meant to be, I am the teacher, you must listen to me, right? At some level, that relationship becomes one of both give and take, right? Who starts on top can find themselves on the bottom and back and forth, right? Like any true relationship, right? All relationships have hierarchies, but those hierarchies ideally are always constantly being overturned. So he says here, I think this is very powerful, he says, my responsibility, we're thinking about the rabbi as a teacher, is to help them, his community, um, see their responsibility. My responsibility is to help them see their responsibility. Mm. Right? In a large sense, that's like what Ford is getting at with analysis. Right? The goal of analysis is to get the person on some level to be responsible for themselves, for, for their unconscious, for their symptoms, for their stuff. Doesn't mean it's, it's all their fault, but they got to be responsible for it. And that's a choice that they can only, they, only they can make. And I'll read you this again as he fully expresses this, and I'll, we can end with this. He says, and my responsibility is to be the best Jew I can. I must learn in order to teach. I must learn every day if I will have enough to teach every week. I must work out my own religious way, which will not always be the same as the way in which most members of my congregation work out theirs. If they are truly free, then so am I. My destiny is not in their hands any more than theirs is in mine. I can be more observant without making them feel guilty, more critical of Israel without making them anti-Zionists. I am bound to, but distance from the very community in which I work and live. And so help me love. Because again, if you're going to be a shul rabbi, you got to love your shul. This is the most important piece of advice I learned before I was a shul rabbi. And it is true. Being in a shul is like being in a marriage, as you said. Right? Marriage only works if there's love there to found that, that covenant, that breach. He says, but they can and someday will live without me. And I can and someday will live without them. We are brothers and sisters, but we are not surrogates for each other, neither enemies nor intimates. 
neither victims nor masters, neither exactly the same nor wholly different. Being a rabbi is, I suppose, easier said than done. But what that is valuable is not, right? Like that, that's, that's it, in, in, you know, in, in a nutshell. And it, uh, everything else about the rabbinate um, is hard um, to get that point, that we are responsible for each other um, and we are responsible for ourselves because we're not, I'm not you, you're not me. Um, and holding that tension is like ultimately, that's what it means to be a Jew. That's what it means to be in a relationship with God. That means to be in a relationship with Torah. Um, that is what we are there as rabbis to help make possible. And um, it's not easy, but there's no place like being able to do it in the synagogue, in the community, uh, with all the impossible challenges of it. And, you know, again, David, you've done amazing work in Chicago and you'll do amazing work in D.C. And, you know, there's certainly no small part of me that's envious and jealous that you are still in it, doing the impossible, um, but also making the impossible happen. Um, and, you know, helping us, you know, be responsible um, for that which matters most. Um, so thank you, David. And to you. Thank you so much for that, for that, uh, that bracha. <laughs> thank you for the, for your time uh, over this interview. And I also want to just turn to the listeners and thank you for, um, for listening today. And, and for some of you who've been listening for four or five years to these podcasts, thank you very much. I hope we have opportunities to share ideas and learn together and to, you know, share hopefully good news for many, many years to come over whatever uh, medium uh, we find and there was invented in the future <laughs> to enable that. So, uh, so thank you very much. And, and the beautiful thing I'll say is that even when you leave, right, it doesn't mean you can't still be in relationship with each other, yeah. both the congregation yeah. with the rabbi, the rabbi with the congregation. Because sure. as we know, right, famous line in Shir Shirim, Aza Kimavet Ava, right? Like love is as strong as death, which means that if death ends a marriage, love enables something to, you know, continue. And, um, and those because those relationships are real. Um, yeah. And that's something we should, you know, everybody should be able to, you know, want to cherish. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.